0: Welcome to the Palladium Podcast. This is episode number seven. I'm your host, editor-in-chief, Jonah Bennett. And uh, as usual, I'm joined by... Ash Knowlton, managing editor. I'm Wolf Divey, another editor. <laughs> <laughs> we need better titles, guys. We, yeah, Come on. Okay, now, moving on. Um, our question of the week this week from the, from the reader mailbag that everyone <laughs> so generously fills over abundantly every week. Uh, should sugar be a... Should sugar be classified as a schedule
1: three substance controlled substance uh, i I'll give my answer which is absolutely yes sugar is uh, sugar is is not good sugar is a mind altering substance mind altering substances are haram uh, sugar is just bad for you it causes diabetes it's definitely unnatural and weird I don't like it
0: yeah at- um what, what do we think about... So, so there's, the, there's the, you know, the, the health effects that we're all too well aware of, but I think sugar has been more historically destructive in the context of, of empires and slave trade and should be slotted in with all such foreign substances like coffee and, and tea and spices um it's these, they're these all the
1: things that, that drove past imperialist cor- expansion correct. And slavery correct this is yeah, definitely the most stuff.
2: palladium-esque answer. this is a
1: hot take okay yes. that's a hot take
2: so i i have a very subtle approach to this which is that we must of course uh classify as schedule three the abomination known as corn syrup which continues to degrade the north american populace however sugarcane is very woke and and is a great fuel source, and we cannot allow a sugarcane gap to uh, grow between us and Brazil, which is currently the world leader. So corn syrup, Schedule 3, sugarcane, no. It's hello.
1: All right. No, all no, right. no. Be... I, I think sugarcane is absolutely unacceptable. I think uh, all sugar is the same. It's just a chemical. It's all the this same This man stuff.
2: has been paid off by Bolsonaro. <laughs> yeah, sure, I want to sure. <laughs> call it here. All right.
0: That's enough of that. Uh, Ash, why don't you, before, so before we get into uh, discussing uh, the, the Balkans article we recently published, what's hot in the news right now is the, the uh, Venezuela coup, a and coup. It is a coup, and it is a coup, <laughs> but before we get into the semantics of that, Ash, why don't you just uh, let everyone know what's been going, what's been happening, what the situation is over the past few days in Venezuela.
2: Sure. So it's been a chaotic couple of days, and I'm sure we'll continue to have information coming out over the next week or two. But uh, briefly, the events that transpired were more or less as follows. On uh, April 30th, uh, Guaido, the leader of the opposition, um, essentially called for mass protests. Another opposition leader named Leopoldo Lopez, who uh, had also been a prominent activist, um, I believe he had had some kind of role as Guaido's uh, m- mentor uh, I guess Guaido had taken inspiration from him in the past for the position he is now uh, He'd been under house arrest and was released and he appeared with Guaido on April 30th um, And they the The goal rather of the protest seems to have been to try and force the military or at least segments of the military to cede to the opposition and assist them in taking power Uh, Right now, the military is still one of the main bulwarks of the Maduro government's uh, ability to keep power. Um, And that goes back to the days of Chavez, who, of course, had been uh, a military man as well. So those those ties go back some years. Uh, They're not particular to Maduro himself. Um, So Guaido uh, had titled this new attempt at protests Operation Freedom and uh the goal was uh, as i say to ultimately try and get the military to assist them in taking power what actually ended up happening was uh in in the morning opposition protests did begin um several soldiers had appeared with Guido. uh i i've heard varying numbers on the amount of soldiers that he was able to bring out like some numbers as low as 15 or 20. um I don't believe anyone from sort of a a significant rank has really been associated with these or any of the other protests. Um, Nevertheless, uh, a few thousand people did come onto the streets uh, and the Maduro government uh, rolled out the security forces. Now this is interesting to me because something that's been ongoing in the Western media is this battle over how to portray the support that the opposition has. I mean, there's clearly is a significant part of Venezuelan society that is anti-Maduro. Um, the, the opposition support doesn't come out of nowhere, but something that I find is significant here and that not that many people have commented on is the fact that Maduro essentially didn't feel the need to make any public statement about this until the evening, uh, You know, which, which the, these protests started essentially early in the morning, probably around dawn or so, maybe even a bit earlier um and the the confidence of maduro and his government uh figures were coming out on social media and on government media denouncing and calling for counter demonstrations but the security forces more or less seemed to i mean there was conflict on the streets but the security forces didn't seem to be particularly worried about a, a government falling uh over these protests they they did defend the Miraflore's palace uh, by barricading it, Um, but ultimately uh, Guaido called for renewed protests on May 1st, which occurred, I believe there were larger counter-protests. Significantly, uh, the colectivos did come out for this, so um, these are the pro-Maduro armed groups who are among more radical supporters of the, the Maduro government. Um, we discussed them in the Venezuela piece more extensively. Um, they, they showed up and uh, there was shooting going on between opposition and Colectivo and security forces. Um, but ultimately, uh, the protests seem to have more or less dispersed. The opposition leader, uh, Leopoldo Lopez, um, appears to have gone now first to the Chilean embassy, and then I believe he was transferred to the Spanish embassy later on so he's he seems to be uh, trying to either gain protection or leave the country. Um, I assume that's something else that will develop in the coming days. Um, and so really after these couple of days, Guido is continuing to call for renewed protests. I think that the opposition basically try is trying to strategically create momentum here to put pressure on the government ultimately to fall and for the U.S. and uh, countries who recognize the opposition to increase their support. Um, but in terms of on-the-ground support, it seems pretty clear that even within uh, the the cities where there may be more opposition support, the government still continues to be able to bring people out on the streets, and significantly institutions such as the military seem to still be standing by the government, so that that's kind of the the sum uh, as as to where uh, events have led to for now.
0: Yeah. So one of the things I find most interesting is that is that he failed to follow the classic coup rule book of you have to uh, commandeer public broadcasting systems, TV, radio, communication systems, etc. And and I believe the coup announcement or or like attempted coup announcement or rebellion announcement or whatever you want to call it. Was just posted to Twitter.
2: Yeah, well, and in that way, you know. Not everyone uses. There may be a, a way in which you could say that this wasn't really a coup yeah, it wasn't because a coup if. Because they didn't if do his, all the
1: stuff they need to.
2: Well, yeah, 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 in, 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 exactly. But I, even in terms of the goal, I I mean, ultimately, Guaido's goal is to take power, but I, I don't think that these protests were really meant to be that final moment. Uh, presumably had segments of the military defected then th- this Operation Freedom idea would have entered a new phase where they tried to take control I can,
0: I can accept that, that's the extremely bespoke take, it's not that it's not a coup because he's actually the legitimate leader or president of Venezuela it's not a coup because it sucked so bad I can accept that I can accept that
2: something else that I could bring up here so this this is a story that's kind of been occurring alongside um th- these protests so Venezuela had been a member of uh the Organization of American States which is a um which is sort of a coalition of states in North and South America headquartered in Washington DC um and it, like like they they generally try try and deal with any number of Pan-American issues now in Venezuela this is viewed as what they would call an imperialist organization because of the fact that it's headquartered in Washington DC but also because um, with the way that these battles have been playing out that organization has um, or members of that organization have I believe tried to get Venezuela removed and Venezuela itself ultimately sought to leave. Um, the oas now guaidó has independently reached out to them and asked for venezuela to remain a member i believe he's appointed his own representatives and so as these protests were happening um some of those processes had been finalized and i think venezuela has now left the oas but guaidó's representatives are still in contact with them and this is kind of another small battleground now for recognition um and sort of as these protests were happening there were one of the bylines of madura supporters on the streets was celebrating that that uh venezuela was no longer part of this organization mm-hmm. um and th- this you know be, the americas are interesting in that in terms of countries that have recognized guaidó which is a minority of countries worldwide but a lot of them are actually in the Americas, so uh, the U.S. and Canada, of course, but then a number of countries in South America as well. So here you can kind of see this encirclement. I think mm-hmm. that the Venezuelan government is probably um, seeing its that this is the situation the Venezuelan government is seeing itself in, and, and, uh, and, and this... it may fall
0: at some point in the future, just not at the current moment. I think, and I and I publicly. So, so you know, we sent some people down to Colombia and Venezuela for a Palladium article uh, just over a month ago, and and based on our analysis in that article, we concluded that uh, U.S. military support in the in the form of an ex- of a, of toppling the regime and prosecuting some kind of extended counterinsurgency campaign would be an absolute disaster. It'd be an absolute disaster because of uh, the irregular pro-Maduro forces, the fact that. Uh, there are only so many uh, ways to invade Venezuela feasibly. Uh, the fact that much of Venezuela is covered by deep jungle and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, not to mention foreign support uh, as well from Russia and China and other countries. Uh, and, and so as a result of that, you know, I, I predicted as soon as I heard of the coup, basically, that it would immediately fail. And it seems as though that's come about Maybe things drastically switch in the next twenty-four or forty-eight hours, but I'm still happy to to hang myself on that prediction one way or another. Um, and I think it it unfortunately indicates the severe uh, state uh, of of CIA capabilities in 2019. It just the absolute diminishment of our ability to to do operations abroad. I mean, I know during the covert ops heyday, uh, back during the Cold War, the CIA had some notable blunders, you know, especially with with coups and assassinations and so on. But this is just a whole new level of, of kind of pathetic, limp wristed, half hearted uh, attempt to make this. And, and it's made much worse by all of the posturing from administration officials and uh, politician, U.S. politicians like Marco Rubio on Twitter. Uh, just as, as the um, bold talk escalates on, on Twitter, the actual capacity to carry out uh, you know, a coup operation goes exactly in the opposite direction. It's kind of an inverse relationship there. Uh, and it's and it's pretty embarrassing. I, I don't know why they chose this very moment to try the coup but it, it, it might be because Maduro forces were closing in and This was the only time that they had or you know, the US was getting impatient So they said pull the trigger and we'll have your back uh, I, I think uh, They're there I, I don't know the exact dynamics of the relationship between the opposition and the U.S., like I, I'm, I'm sure there was some uh, there was some probably fibbing about uh, figures from the opposition to the U.S. Uh, to 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 garner U.S. support in the first place, and and then I'm I'm sure there was some fibbing going the other way around with the yeah. e- extent of support that would be given to the opposition as a, as a part of this operation, uh, and so the consequence is that you have this nice cia man saying you know things will work out just like trust me just trust me just go go ahead with this now's the time to pull the trigger and then they pull the trigger and and it's a complete and utter disaster and and a huge embarrassment and and you see all these as i said loud and obnoxious tweets from from us politicians on twitter and then it's just so pathetic to see the actual reality in play i could respect it a little bit more if, if they were posting, if they were godfather memeing on Twitter, and then they actually successfully toppled the regime really quickly, but it doesn't appear to be going that way at all, and so it's just a, just a complete and utter embarrassment.
2: Well, I think one of the problems for the opposition here is, uh, in, in terms of the messaging that's come out from the United States itself and from the Trump administration, Right. The, the predominant narrative that is shared by media organizations that are normally opposed to whatever the Trump administration does, like CNN or MSNBC, is that, you know, it's it's this very familiar line that, well, we're just trying to help Venezuela restore democracy and restore human rights and all of this stuff. But then you have this confounding factor of, of John Bolton just straight up coming out and being like, man, it sure be great if American companies could get some of that sweet Venezuelan oil. Uh, and Bolton, you know, he's always been a more, um, I guess realistic on the fact that uh, American foreign policy is an extension of you know what's at least perceived as American interests. Um, and and this is creating problems on the ground, I'm sure, for the opposition because there's something that we should think about, which is that when we're talking about who supports the government, there's a difference between who votes for pesuv. Uh, which is the the governing party in an election versus who would fight for the government or at least not fight for an invading force if it was perceived to be like a, a foreign backed coup where the 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 sovereignty of Venezuela was at stake those are two different things. Uh, I, I'm you know within Venezuela there are I'm sure plenty of people who aren't fans of the government. But, I mean, imagine the—look the, at any of the wars America fights. Uh, there, there's plenty of people who aren't voting for the governing party. But when a war is, is seen as against an enemy that you have a, a, essentially a patriotic duty to unify against, those differences are overcome. And so, uh, in a lot of cases—I mean, you, you can is even that, see is this Is true, with, or is um, it
1: like, like in Iraq— you know, the vast majority of people, from what I understand, are just sort of like ambivalent about the U.S. I mean, maybe I could be completely wrong here, but but then you
2: get like a few. No, I think that's and... correct. A, a lot of people who opposed Saddam.
1: Oh, people who opposed well, it Saddam can be, don't it can be a, a, a support... war
2: can be a unifying force, right? So, so we can look at Assad in Syria more recently, where... Um, You have, for example, the the SSNP, which is the sort of nationalist party in Syria, which historically opposed Assad and the the Ba'ath Arab um, party, but within the context of the civil war, they became one of the main forces on the ground allied with the Assad government. They were given actually responsibility in coordinating things like checkpoints and security work, and, and a number of these groups that had oppose the government are, are now quite unified with it and you know in, in the the piece on the middle eastern christians we discussed last time in we were talking about lebanon and how uh, where there had been you know civil unrest uh, and conflict a few decades ago people on opposite sides of that war are now essentially unified in the new geopolitical situation and the same pr- presumably would happen in venezuela to groups that are opposed to the Maduro government but don't necessarily want to see um either a, a US backed government or just a return to the the neoliberal regime that existed in the 90s
0: so let's bring up the the brief question of uh whether we could call what is happening or what has happened in Venezuela a coup because some people so some people have made the argument that uh you know there's based on some sort of, like, constitutional clause, there's some obscure semi-legal argument that could be made to the effect that the opposition is, in fact, uh, Guaido is, is, is in fact, the lawful and, and just president of Venezuela, something like this. And so, in fact, what this is, is just a, a restoration of the existing authority and a, and a removal of an illegitimate authority. And therefore it's some sort of like transition
1: (laughs) existing authority. I mean, the guy was never in there in the first place, right? Like maybe, I don't know what the, what the specific sort of claim is legally. Like maybe he got the vote or whatever. So, so, but like there's an existing regime. They're trying to depose it by force or by at least by extra legal means doing, doing like doing, my, my
0: problem here is that doing weird legal magic about legitimacy and 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 distorting that frame as though Maduro himself has no claim to legitimacy and it's purely just uh, Guido. like he's the sole you know, arbiter of legitimacy and it's and it's so very clear cut. Well, it's not clear cut at all, in fact., um, they're, they're, you know, I'm not saying you couldn't make an argument in his direction. But it's, it's... Well, it's not about legitimacy at all. From, it's it's just far like, from clear. Whether
1: it's a coup is not about legitimacy at all. It's like there is an existing regime. It is in charge. Someone else is trying to overthrow that regime sure. by by various means outside of the system. That that attempt to overthrow the thing is being put down and it's not succeeding. <laughs> like, the, there are, are different ways at, like, you could define me- the Mechanically, thing. what's going on here is a coup. We have a word not, for this. It's so, a coup. so
0: there are some people that want to integrate... Uh, the concept of legitimacy into the co- concept of coup, right? Such that whether it's a coup or not, depend- it, but the problem is is when you're trying to do social science,
1: proper social science, and... Yeah, if you're trying to actually understand the world instead of engage in, like, dis- deceptive propaganda, then you use terms that are clear and technical. Well, well yeah, not, you use this, te- like, clear nonsense. and
0: technical terms that are, that, that sort of you, you strip of as much... Uh, perspectival properties as possible, yeah, and legitimacy is what's one. Of, legitimacy is one of these voodoo properties that essentially allows you to go around toppling any regime you want by coming. Like, tell you me, just a, fire tell, up tell tell me. the legitimacy printing the, machine yeah, yeah, in exactly. the basement, yeah, in Washington. The, yeah, exactly. The <laughs> legitimacy you know, printing machine, print just like the, yeah, yeah, exactly.
2: Well, and so one of the confounding factors uh, when it comes to legitimacy is that w- there have been changes to the Venezuelan constitution um that have occurred under under the Chavez and Maduro governments and part of that was the creation of new electoral bodies. Now the opposition currently uh, I believe controls the National Assembly, which is where they're trying to create this argument that as leaders of the National Assembly they have the ability to uh, depose the president. Um, however, there are other bodies which, which were created, uh, it seems to so that the 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 government could have, Institutions within the state that it viewed as more dependable. Um, th- there was a whole arc of conflict where the uh, courts, uh, the Supreme Court in court in Venezuela, um, for a time, delegitimized the National Assembly itself. I believe that's now been revoked, and it has legitimacy again. But the the opposition, uh, because all of these changes required, or a lot of them required, either elections or sort of ratifying referenda. Which the opposition then, um, they refused to participate. Uh, in those refer- in, in those elections. And so th- th- this sort of confounds the case for legitimacy. And it can be used either way, because people who support the government can say, well, you know, y- you refuse to participate in an election, but the election still happened. And constitutionally speaking, uh, you know, then the government's position is clear. The-, the opposition line has generally been that they consider the elections to be corrupted, and, and that they're, refusal to participate was a legitimate form of protest because the elections were not legitimate to begin with. Well, that just Um, that actually
1: just goes back to support the it's a coup line, because like at the point where the official legitimate mechanisms have broken down and no one trusts the official legitimate mechanisms, if you're trying to take over the government uh, and, and you claim that the official mechanisms are not legitimate, then you're trying to take over the government from outside of the official legitimate mechanisms, and therefore it is a coup. So, I mean, right so when' the there's fighting when, the, when the
2: security forces are shooting at each other in the streets right. at that coup. point <laughs> this is not going to be resolved by uh, you know arguing yeah, this, this isn't an uh, argument in your in case within it, the constitutional in, in, in mechanisms
0: and it's funny that it's funny uh, that you know yeah. both Bloomberg and the Washington Post ran ran stories uh, or op-eds rather saying you know don't call this a coup it's it's you know, the expression of like free and 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 fair and legitimate protest or something like this not not quite but that's that's basically the gist of it Uh, the bloomberg one was done by eli lake in particular who's kind of notorious for jumping on the bandwagon of of any like harebrained regime change scheme that has ever existed and will ever exist um and if you read eli lake's piece you'll see how utterly incoherent it is i i Pointed some of this out on Twitter. He's like
1: Someone's like, hey Eli, write this thing or you lose your job. No, and it's
0: it, like, you know, that's not it's not quite that at all. I I mean, yeah, I mean think, it doesn't
1: really work like that. No, no, no.
0: I think he he legitimately like he probably <laughs> like he believes, believes this or I whatever. Uh, but that doesn't mean it's not stupid. because uh, that that's that's a whole different topic. Uh, but the piece itself, I I you know, highly recommend that people read it to see the the Shoddy level of discourse in and and the semantic games played there, but it's not even sophisticated. It's really just really really bad, like just really bad. But it's this, not. This it's is not smart. And there's no. There's no. Oh, this is. You know, I could see a plausible case here, or this is semi convincing, or like you know, maybe it's a toss up, 50-50 here. It's like no, it's it's just the whole article was was actually just really
1: really bad. Like it was just terrible. Well, what this sort of starts to remind me of is like you know, there's, there's this thing where they sort of come out in a semi-coordinated way, the kind of, like, uh, the establishment voices, they come out in a semi-coordinated way, like, with, with some line that's kind of r- really half-baked, like, oh, yeah, don't call it a coup. Or, or like, you know, it reminds me of the Easter worshippers thing that happened a little while back when those people got, uh, Christians got bombed at Easter, um, and, and like, you know, big American officials, you know, like Easter worshipers, you know, they don't want to call it Christian, but it's like very obvious they've coordinated on the, on the use of their language. Right. And then like f- further back, kind of the fake news thing, which just came out of nowhere. All these mainstream art, all these mainstream, uh, publications talking about fake news kind of all on the same day. Like there's obviously some coordination behind the scenes, but it's like, it's becoming like more and more incoherent and. Oh, and like transparently coordinated in a way, well, like, I mean, like you it, can it, imagine, like a more a sophisticated propaganda operation, uh, you know, by by these forces that don't really want to reveal themselves. Um, now that you have, now that you have communication systems that are really efficient
0: all it takes is is like you know a, an email from the from the dnc or the rnc or this and that and people it's like all right here's our line yeah, yeah, but it's just like it's becoming really obvious
1: and transparent and like yes. half baked yeah 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 like like a sophisticated propaganda organization or a sophisticated propaganda machine would like not look so clumsy in do in making these these public uh, public stances
2: yeah so the yeah i i think that uh yeah just i'm thinking you know in in terms of the long run for venezuela here because jonah you sort of mentioned you, you had publicly predicted um that this coup was not going to be uh successful and i think moving you know looking even a bit longer term than that uh we sort of discussed this when we were discussing the venezuela piece originally but one of the things that will contribute to the outcome of the situation is the popular support that the sides actually feel they have, and I think something that I've seen consistently underestimated, you know, in the media, but I think also just as I've talked with people who follow this, you know, who who are generally informed and smart people, um, is an underestimation of how much support the memory of chavez if not maduro himself then the memory of chavez has among the venezuelan people because you know when generally a lot of people who who we meet in the venezuelan diaspora say are are going to be people aligned with the opposition because they are usually people of the particular class that tends to support the opposition but and that can skew one's view, right? Because if most of the Venezuelans one meets, say, in DC or New York or in Toronto or in San Francisco, are supporting the opposition, then the impression you get is, well, like, oh, clearly, like the whole country is behind the opposition and, and this is dictatorial. But one has to remember that is not necessarily representative of the country itself. And when the government first came in, the, the level of poverty in a lot of areas was quite high. And the fact, you know, for a lot of especially poor and working class Venezuelans, they remember the cult of Chavez and they remember programs that were rolled out where, you know, they, they got a level of education and economic assistance and so on. And they also, you know, they and, and they embrace this, this discourse of anti-imperialism and, and, you know, fighting the Yankee Empire and all of this stuff. And regardless of, you know, one can have all sorts of arguments about the factual basis and who's right and who's wrong, but just in the pure sense of people feeling a gut loyalty to the memory of that, uh, even if they dislike the successor, uh, that's quite strong. And there are segments of Venezuela which will remain loyal to Chavez until the day they die. And, you know, groups like the Colectivos, Are just the most maybe militant and fanatical manifestation of that and so in in either case here because if one if one takes the view that um the fact that maduro has been able to come to no kind of agreement with this you know significant part of the population that does support the opposition if one takes that as some kind of delegitimizing factor well An opposition taking power and especially if it's backed by the united states and by foreign governments that situation will be even will be far more exacerbated i would predict with the segments of venezuela that remain loyal to the memory of chavez and so that that argument cuts both ways very easily so trying to create some kind of um unity government uh i i I don't really know how that will actually end up working out within the venezuelan context
0: i want i want to point out uh going back to one thing i said before when talking about uh you know the legitimacy printing machine in some dc basement there's there's just no country on earth where you can't manufacture a case that the existing government is illegitimate and therefore uh Toppling that regime wouldn't be a coup, but rather a transition or a restoration of actually legitimate authority, and that's really the problem with conceiving of, of a coup as uh, as necessarily uh, having a component of legitimacy in order for that concept yeah. to, well, to what exist. Well, what first this place. comes down
1: to is like I want to kind of plug the entire project of Palladium here a bit. The What this comes down to is like a moralization of technical language. Like we have these terms that we use to describe what's actually happening and to actually understand the world, not not necessarily through a moral lens, but just like what's going on here. And those are terms like coup and so on. And then you see this repeatedly in American discourse where these technical terms and just calling something like it actually is and calling it like just like a a particular technical frame becomes moralized and and people have uh because there's these like implicit um and, and often explicit like conflations of particular um particular structural things as being inherently this way or that like morally legitimately like um, and, and so it means like we have to lie and say that a bunch of things are democratic that aren't actually democratic from a technical point of view, because democracy is seen as like synonymous with this legitimacy thing. Um, and, and there's like many more examples. This coup thing is, is one of them. Right. It's like, oh, well, we don't like coups. Coups are not like a democratic mechanism. Therefore, they must be bad. Therefore, if we support regime change, if we support a coup then it must not be a coup. And it's like, it just completely confuses your entire way of thinking about the world. It completely confuses your ontology. And so like, I was I was uh, doing a lot of trying to explain uh, Palladium this last weekend. I was at uh, the YC120 conference put on by Y Combinator um, trying to explain the project. And it's like, one of the things that we're trying to do is is create a little pocket of discourse here where we're not moralizing everything and we're not distorting all our technical understanding uh, and subordinating our technical understanding to, to some some political ideology or, or like even expedience, which which kind of looks like the case in, in this Venezuela thing. Um, it, like we have, this, we have this big problem, which is that if we're doing that all the time, if we're moralizing everything and all our discourse is on that level, then we actually end up with nobody who understands how the stuff actually works. And we really need people who understand how this stuff actually works, which means using technical terms in, in their truthful connotation rather than their moral connotation. No, I I Uh, actually, so so this is like what I think is a really big part of the project at Palladium is like kind of what we mean by governance, futurism or part of what we mean by governance, futurism is like, let's just look at the thing straight. Let's like boldly look into the future and not try to moralize it immediately but instead build up our system of knowledge first. I think there's possibly
0: um, a tension between uh, the desire to formalize existing uh, power relations and to uh, refer to things by their proper technical terms and the, the need for states to kind of act surreptitiously at times and to... Uh, I mean, why wouldn't we expect them that, but that's just the thing, especially if they don't have uh, the full power to do what they would like to do uh, because such, such um, actions in favor of their interests would cause them to lose some amount of legitimacy. Why, in that case, why wouldn't we expect them to uh, want to apply the same sort of uh, stifling corporate PR language to foreign policy?
1: Yeah, I mean, like, of course, we, we expect it. I think that's, uh, I, I think we have to, we have to make that clear. It's not like the establishment could, in the current structural position, really do anything different, um, because, like, for whatever reason, they kind of need to convince the American people, whatever that is, uh, that what's going on in, in Venezuela, uh, you know, is like, this side is right, that side is wrong. Um, like, for some reason, there's these, like, public there's some public that you have to dupe about what you're doing um and and like so i think this is probably true in any state yeah it's true in any state it's gonna but like what what the structural constraints on on the public story is are gonna change depending on the structure of the state and who you need kind of on board and whether people you need on board uh, need to be duped and like there's an important difference between like operational secrecy like, oh yeah, we're carrying out this thing. Think of it what you will. We don't care. It's going to get carried out. Versus like, uh, versus like somehow needing public legitimacy for, for something where it's like, oh, it's not a coup. It's, it's it's like, just mass epistemic poisoning. At yeah. That point. And, and, and like, even if you're going to need that mass epistemic poisoning, which like, it, you know, I'm, I'm not partial to that kind of governance, but, uh, you know, even if you need that somewhere, there needs to be a pocket of discourse where people are actually using the right technical terms, and and I I, I no sort of no longer have confidence that 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 exists in in the American well. Discourse. That's the problem
2: with the with the obfuscation of language is that um, you know because this is a very in propaganda this sort of uh, is is something that strategically makes sense to do because obviously if you're foundational. If the foundation of your legitimacy is democracy, then you want to be the Democrats and your enemies are anti-democratic. But we, we see that this is actually leaked over into the, the theory that people who are aspiring to join the governing class are imbibed in an elite universities. And so when um, that talking point came out about it's not a coup because they're trying to restore democracy, this reminded me a bit of uh, liberal democratic peace theory, right? Which, Jonah, you wrote a piece on uh, some time back for Palladium. And the, the one of the points that I remember you discussing was that in practice, the way we define liberal democracy crosses over with which countries are members of the American alliance. And so you kind of mix up the cause and the effect there. Now... If, if, you're, if you're someone who's trying to legitimize uh, America as a country or a world order, then it makes sense to say something like, well, we're the ones guaranteeing democracy. But when you're trying to figure out why the liberal order works or why the American alliance is able to function and go along, then just using these simplistic obfuscations is actually going to make you misunderstand your your own basis of power. And the 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 coup thing is just one particular manifestation of how that seems to be embraced. And in this in this way, right? Someone like Bolton, who is viewed as this hardliner and a fanatic, I would say he actually just understands and is willing to say maybe that's the major difference. Um, you know, here's here's our motivation. Uh, here's why. Here's why. Uh, you know, he sees this. Action of overthrowing the Maduro government is beneficial to the United States, but this is a sort of realpolitik that is unacceptable to the polite, you know. Uh, the polite niceties, let's say, of, of people who've gone to Ivy League universities and have imbibed this obfuscated language, which lets you feel more morally clean about what you're doing, maybe, but actually ends up causing harm in the long run, because then you start these kinds of interventions that don't end up working, and you actually create a tremendous amount of suffering.
1: Yeah, I mean, like, like, we're ultimately idealists, right? Like, we want the world to work better, we want to be part of like a moral society and so on. But, but I think it's really critical to understand that you actually can't do that unless you're being honest with yourself about what you're doing. Like if you're not being honest with yourself about how the thing works and what you're actually doing, then you're just not going to look at the parts of what you're doing that are actually not good. And, and you're not going to be able to make them better. You're not going to be able to make your thing run more efficiently or or more, more morally, it's just going to like squish some people and you're going to say, oh yeah, but they deserved it. Right. Because, because your thing is like axiomatically moral. And, and and so I think it's like, it's, you know, say what you will about like Bolton's open imperialism, like at least it's honest, right? Um, Like, I think Mm. honesty is one of the big virtues in this space. Like we first before trying to like, pretend that we're being all good and everything, like, let's be honest about what we're doing. Um, And and be honest about how these things work. And then we can actually look at the world through a lens of of wisdom. And and we can look at then and, and, and sort of uh, then, you know, embark on the project of actually making it better. And I think, um, like sort of an, an additional point I'll just throw in here is like, you know, we're, we're talking a lot about like propaganda in the, in this area. And I I think like an important question is just like, why do you need the propaganda? What, where is the need for propaganda coming from? I, I mean, I'm not, I'm not endeavoring to really answer that here, but like, I think it's a good question to ask is like, why do we need to lie about this? Uh, what structural factors um, are, are leading to our need to lie?
0: And I and I don't expect by uh, calling out the joke, as it were, that you know, and but that by doing this, we're going to cause some sort of uh, major impact on broader U.S. discourse. No, I mean, that's not the point. The sheep, wake up. Wake up, sheeple. <laughs> no, no, no. Wake yeah, up. Yeah. No, I mean... Like, wake up, sheeple. Yeah, I it's mean, not, like... So it's to not going to happen, right? To it's...
1: be clear, what Palladium is about here is not like, oh, yeah, we're trying to, like, call out the discourse and, and like, you know, change things or whatever. It's what all lies. Do, Illuminati. Whatever, Jonah. <laughs> <laughs> what, we're, what we're trying to do is, is create a pocket of discourse where it is possible, to be honest. And... Uh, because, like, you know, the the overall discourse, like, for a lot of reasons, as we've as we've said, like, structurally is like incapable in of kind of like analyzing things clearly. But it needs that that clear analysis needs to exist somewhere, or else we're totally screwed. Well,
2: and this is something I commented about. I, I think I mentioned on Twitter as well that there's this weird trait in, in I think in I would say in the in the liberal order in general, but I think especially in 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 political media culture where it's based on this weird pragmatism of ends and uh idealism of means. Right. And what I mean by that yeah. is that in yeah, terms of the, want ends their oil. of the liberal <laughs> order, you know, on a very Yeah, yeah, so so Bolton, we want their oil, you know, it's a very pragmatic end. But even in terms of the more philosophical idea uh you know and one could have endless debates about this but of liberalism the idea is that you do not have some kind of overarching unifying good rather every individual determines their own idea of the good and what's worth pursuing and so there's there in a way shouldn't be any higher unifying uh cause rather you're just maintaining the ability of each person to pursue their own end because anything else is inadvisable but then with this pragmatism of ends is this idealism of means where we embark on these nation building projects. uh, You know, we allow these coups to happen, we destabilize entire regions of the world, um, because the way that you get to that end has to be within a sort of Western capitalist, liberal democratic uh, set of institutions. And and so these institutions are paramount to preserve this pragmatism. I think in a way, what, makes us distinct certainly myself i prefer an idealism of ends and a pragmatism of means right
1: i I think that's that's a good way to put it like and and you know what we've just been talking about the moralization of language about what's actually happening and how these things work really comes down to that idealism of means like you know if a coup is always bad then if you support it for pragmatic reasons like we want the oil uh then it must not be a coup um, right. Which is like completely incoherent logic, but, um, but like that, that's kind of what you're forced into. If you, if you take that stance of, um, of idealism of means is, is you're actually forced yeah. directly into uh, perversion of language.
0: So, and on, on that note, we've got about 15 minutes left. I think it's time for us to, to explore, uh, one of the recent pieces that was published in Palladium uh, about the Balkans, uh, the title of the piece is "The Balkans Are Hanging by an American Thread." The author is Luka Jukic. and and so basically, let me just intro it for a second. Uh, basically, the the piece is looking at the, the Dayton Agreement that was signed on uh, December fourteenth, nineteen ninety five, and it's a bit of a a a look back over the, over that past time uh, on on how it's functioned and uh the crucial role america has played in keeping that region of the world stable um and the potential now uh for that that region to completely devolve
1: into chaos well, Yeah, again. like to make to make it clear it's like okay the us's role in keeping that region stable basically like the us s- sort of stepped in and helped stop the the ethnic war that was happening in the yes, 90s yeah and with the, and then like the ceasefire basically took the form of the states of Bosnia and Kosovo, uh, where things are still substantially mixed, but um, and and still very high tensions and almost failed states in some cases. We we analyze this in in the piece um, in internal to. Bosnia uh, some some interesting things going on and so we, but, we were, we were just then, talking
0: about Bolton and and Bolton says now uh, they've got to solve it for
1: themselves the problems in there. other words America pulls out and now this this big powder keg is is left without any sort of fire suppressant and and so this is the you know the piece
0: is basically uh, a look at, at at what could happen given full American pullout which of course has not happened yet and may not happen as usual uh, when when Trump administration officials are making public statements, sometimes it's just the opening of a negotiation So it's never really clear if that's just an attempt to get concessions or if that's the entire policy that they tend to go through with um, I tend to think they in this case they actually do want to withdraw they they don't see the bulk like there's that they don't have a whole lot of
1: strategic interests in the in the Balkans yeah well I think like uh, Luca makes the point that that Kosovo actually is kind of a mess and that the proposed solution sort of makes sense with respect to Kosovo itself and that the. US for various reasons does have an interest in pulling out of the region but but he kind of goes and analyzes the knock-on effects of that in in the form of like oh well this like by by de, if they were to divide Kosovo along ethnic lines, which is I think one of the proposals on the table, um, this actually like reopens the the debate about where the ethnic borders should be, and and then that really inflames things in in Bosnia, where uh, you know there's like a Serbian sort of breakaway republic that it hasn't quite. Gotten to the point of wanting to claim to break away, but it's like a bill, it has the ability to do that, and that could end up being kind of uh, pretty messy. Um, what I find interesting
0: about, about the Dayton Agreement itself is that, uh, at least back then, I think they, they weren't as rosy eyed about the view of, of moving in, uh, sending in some troops, and uh, establishing a democracy, calling it a day, and exiting it. That that sort of delusion didn't really surface until uh, late, like much later in the '90s and early 2000s. Yeah. At this point, they were still willing uh, to to set up basically colonial arrangements, and so uh, the Dayton Agreement led to the creation of the Office of the High Representative, and essentially, it's a very illiberal governing structure that even some people have referred to as a modern-day British Raj. For example, in, in Bosnia and Herzegovina, um, international administrators have totally defined the uh, agenda, forced the agenda on the country's institutions, and, and then punished any actors who aren't interested in, in cooperating. Uh, you know, the OHR uh, only answers to an ele- un- unelected body of, of various foreign ministries and, and more or less has unlimited legal powers when it comes to to handling the, the, the country, for example and uh, so it has massive amounts of, of unchecked power and uh, when it feels like things are getting out of hand, uh, you know it'll say like hand legislators, a bunch of legislation it's drafted and say pass this or else uh, more or less. And so it's not it's not quite colonialism in the sense that there's no, major element of of resource extraction but i would but it is some sort of like illiberal protectorate
2: which is but then it's a really weird illiberal protectorate because it doesn't actually seem to have managed to um institutionalize itself in the sense that it comes in with all these competing power centers and yeah. then slowly you know either cannibalizes or or dissolves their areas of influence because as we see as as we've already mentioned you know we we have this sort of Serb Republic we, we have uh Croatian regions in the country in in Bosnia that um don't particularly feel represented uh, we have a multi-ethnic region, and and we have foreign states uh, such as Croatia, which appear to be actively present the only, um, through the political only cla- parties. The only claim so, I'm, I'm
0: making here is that, uh, is that the arrangement is shockingly illiberal uh, compared to U.S. rhetoric about what it takes for a government to be legitimate.
2: Yeah, yeah, and that's absolutely true. But it, uh, I, I, I think. One can also see uh, within the context here of American interventionism trying to create institutions, and in this case, more explicitly with the United Nations being involved, um, there seems to be essentially a a succession problem occurring, where um, on the one hand there is this question of uh, the ideology and the -the on-the-ground institutions But then those institutions sort of maybe they've managed to create a locus where these different parties can find temporary agreements with each other. But definitely with the analysis being presented here, it seems to be that each segment of the region is consolidating itself in a way that will ultimately divide Bosnia as an entity. And so this, I think, is is something worth pointing out because in any international order right and in any empire we've discussed this study of the american empire before uh the they survive because they're able to provide succession and continuity and that's how you have institutions that last generations that last centuries and with the american empire something that's happened in the last 25 years is a sort of frenetic moving to different centers of activity in the world where here right uh the they started in, in Eastern Europe after the fall of the Soviet Union, then they moved to the Middle East, uh, and now there's a shift towards towards China and the East Asia region. And I've seen this, you know, I, I've definitely seen this specifically represented as a shift away from the Middle East into the Asia region. So in each case here, we're getting these sort of patchwork institutions being created that aren't actually able to provide succession or continuity.
0: Yeah, so what I found interesting about this piece is that the the so, so actually going back to my previous point for a second uh, in response to what you were saying about the OHR and its structure since 2005 it has started to back down a lot from some of the major impositions uh, that it's handed down in the past uh, I haven't done a a a recent as of last month uh, analysis on the current status of, of OHR. Uh, so it's possible if I looked closely at it that uh, the escalation in tensions recently could be a product of OHR backing down over the last 10-15 uh, years or so. Not sure about that. Can you explain what OHR is? Uh, the Office of the High Representative. Is that
1: is that the Bosnian thing?
0: Uh, so the, I mean that's that's part uh, that's a product of the Dayton Agreement. Okay.
1: okay.
0: Uh, actually, I mean so so technically the agreement itself I think created the Peace Implementation Council, the PIC, which then gradually expanded to to, to be the the OHR. So that's just some background knowledge of you know the Balkans in the '90s. Um, but another interesting uh, piece of info here is. The extent to which uh, that we haven't covered so far is not not a class of civilizations uh, by any means, but uh, the various ethnic and religious groups uh, appealing to uh, various foreign powers that would be aligned with them. So, Turkey and the Bosniaks, uh, Serbs and Russians, and but the, but the problem is is that even if the Russians and, and Serbians have some kind of link, there's not a huge strategic reason for uh, Russia to involve itself in the Balkans to come up with a major solution uh, to the problem. And and that's really that's really uh, kind of the heart of the problem here is that there's no major incentive for everyone to get involved again in a very messy conflict that is hurtling toward
1: uh, this conflict so uh, well and if it did if it did become a conflict I think like the clash of civilizations point that Luca makes is pretty interesting that that you know the Croats tend to be Western aligned the Serbs tend to be Russian aligned yeah. and the Muslims tend to be Turkey and, and broader uh, Muslim aligned and and so if you did get any kind of conflict like an ethnic conflict there, Obviously, that would very quickly become um, like a a more broadly politicized conflict between, you know, Islam and and Western-aligned uh, sort of Western nationalists and uh, potentially um, Russian. Uh, I, I'm not sure what factions would come from there, but you could imagine a lot of irregular factions. Like it doesn't even have to be the states themselves; it can be the irregular factions aligned with those sort of broad kind of civilizational themes, um, going in. Like if there was a conflict between like Croats and, 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 uh, Bosnian Muslims or something, you know, you'd imagine like a lot of Western nationalists kind of pouring in as they did in Ukraine. Um, and, and, uh, likewise, um, sort of foreign fighters on, on the, the Muslim side as they did in Syria. Um, and, and so that's like, um, it's this interesting, like, larger ripple effect where if there was any kind of uh, dust up there, even if the, the big power players themselves don't necessarily have an interest in it, there's a lot of irregular forces that might.
2: Well, and this shows you the importance, I think, of geopolitics because if one looks at the history of the region, being being this area, this bridge region between Europe and between uh, the Near East and Eurasia. Uh, the conflicts there have gone on for literally centuries and even even in the period uh, of where you had the Byzantine Empire in the East and you had um, a sort of growing Roman Catholic missionary effort in the West it's that history that contributes to the fact that you have uh, Catholic and Eastern Orthodox communities living right near each other and there was even conflict in those days uh, it shows you as well why Yugoslavia, when it existed, actually had—it was able to punch above its geopolitical weight because lying in that region, it was able to balance, uh, the, you know, the Soviet Union to its east and the the European NATO bloc to its west against each other and thereby survive. But this is only possible when you know someone is able to actually unify. The region in a single political entity and i mean that that was really only tito in the context of uh world war ii was able to make that happen
0: uh going back to what wolf was talking about about uh the different ethnic groups and so on in bosnia the as the article notes the country provided the second most foreign fighters per capita of (laughs) any european country to terrorist organizations in syria and of course the, the, the award in Europe for number one is of course, uh, Belgium, unsurprising to anyone, uh, because of Molenbeek, but I could, uh, we'll have to spend another episode going into that further. Uh, and you know, during the Bosnian war, Bosnia hosted, you know, thousands of, of foreign fighters from across the Muslim world. Um, that was known as the, as the Bosnian Mujahideen. Um, and so you know you can you can only imagine as conflict accelerates that that perhaps it would uh, that that figure would, would increase just so much more dramatically this time and that any radical strains of of islam presence in in bosnia would be would be much more magnified um, ash you were going to say something
2: yeah i, I um, with, with turkey i think uh, there's an interesting thing happening because you know, as you mentioned, uh, the the Islamic or Islamist ideology um, is clearly playing a role here. But with with Turkey trying to exercise power in the region, there is even an ethnic side of this. So uh, I think I've mentioned this on a previous episode, but Erdogan uh, made a speech uh, in the last couple of years where he was discussing the Ottoman Empire and um, about how they regretted you know having left Sofia I think was the city he mentioned which of course uh, is a European city and he got you know there was outrage initially when he made the speech but as we can see um, those ties both Muslim and Turkic ties because of course Turkic Islam is a very distinctive form of Sunni Islam in and of itself and uh, people who may not have been as amenable to say Wahhabi influenced Islamist ideology might be more open to a sort of more neo-Ottoman uh, version of this. Um, I, it, you can even see uh, the ethnic element coming up in places you wouldn't expect. So Hungary, for example, which has a Magyar heritage, despite the fact that it's uh, a Catholic uh, country, a Christian country, um, it has also historically had a, a certain expression of this, this pan-Turkic ideology, um, and and that idea certainly exists in Hungarian society despite this religious difference and despite the 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 very strongly Christian politics that are currently in power there and so you know we we talked last episode about religious literacy but this is even a larger scale you you have to have a literacy in a situation like this of how, very complex interminglings of ethnicity and religion and history all work. And, uh, you know, as I think we've said repeatedly, it does not seem to be the case that the, the Western and the American governing class are really able to play this game well. And Russia, despite the fact that its geopolitical power may be lesser than that of the United States, seems to at least have a certain consciousness due to its own history about how this works that allows it to keep resurfacing and drawing on these ties uh you know in this case in the balkans but as we as we discussed even even in the middle east uh now and so unless we become more more literate more familiar in how this kind of politics works Uh, I think that succession problem that we mentioned is basically going to remain unresolved. Well,
0: uh, and with that, that's about all the time we have for this week. This has been the Palladium Podcast, Episode 7, and uh, we'll see everyone next time. See you guys.